Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Apologetic series, posted August 10, 2020, titled, Inspiring Philosophy's Jesus Tomb Argument, Plus Embarrassment. I run Inspiring Philosophy, and I create a lot of animated graphic videos to defend Christianity. And- what a coincidence! I make a lot of animated videos to counter Christianity. We don't play silly jingles. But why not? These are serious times. I think we could all use more silly jingles. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, please take a second to tap on the subscribe button so you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. While I personally prefer a cross-worldview discussion format over most of these online debate formats, I did take note last month when YouTube apologist Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy was debating the topic, Was Jesus Buried in a Tomb? A topic of great interest to me and my channel. As always... Michael came into this debate extremely prepared with a fresh take argument, and his opening statement was both researched and thought-provoking. Unfortunately, technical turmoil plagued Mike's interlocutor both before and during the debate, and the discussion took other directions and never did return to address the opening arguments. I've left a link to the full debate in the description, but I'd like to go through that opening statement here to evaluate its merit and ultimately let you decide if it's convincing. All right, thanks. I got a lot to cover, so let's dive in. The topic is if Jesus was buried in a tomb as the Gospels record. If Jesus was buried in a tomb as the Gospels record. That's a key place to start. What's recorded in the Gospels is the claim that we're looking for supporting evidence for. Mike opened by laying out something pretty close to my own position. Now, some skeptics argue it's more likely Jesus was not buried in a tomb and instead... He was uh, executed for the crime of insurrection against Rome. He would have been crucified and left to rot on the cross to send a powerful message to would-be rebels that this is what happens to anyone who challenges Rome. His body would later have been thrown into a mass unmarked grave. Of course, this isn't just a skeptic assessment of this history of the period. Two of the world's most recognized Christian resurrection scholars affirm this. Gary Habermas. But I would concede, and many would, that that's what happened to most people. And Mike Lacona. That was the typical practice of the Romans to do that. And of course, New Testament scholar. Bart Ehrman is one of the biggest offenders of this position, and I'll make note of his work in my opening statement. Ehrman cites five sources that show crucified victims were left to rot on crosses. Hit pause later on if you'd like to check these references for yourself. We'll be treating them generally as a block. Mike seems to stipulate that these are enough to establish that leaving victims hanging on the cross was default standard Roman Empire crucifixion practice, all things being equal. As well as four sources, that bodies of criminals were typically thrown into mass unmarked graves. Similarly, that this block of references is enough to establish that mass graves were the default standard Roman Empire crucifixion practice, all things being equal. But... 
So just because in some areas criminals were left on crosses instead of being buried, that doesn't mean this is how things were always done. Oh, it doesn't. What really matters is what were the customs in Judea under Pilate? And none of the sources Ehrman relies on are actually talking about burial practices under Pilate. All right, you've got my attention. What makes Judea under Pilate special and different than the entire rest of the Roman Empire when it comes to crucifixion burials? A fact we need to remember is Rome did not run a nanny state, and they allowed a lot of flexibility in how each province was governed. Okay. These matters were decided by each appointed ruler. And what we see with the neighboring province of Judea is the Jews were allowed to keep their laws. That's very generous. And? Bodies left on crosses for days would have gone against Jewish law. I see. So the claim is that because Pilate allowed the Jews of Judea to keep their laws, and Jews had laws about burial, the Jewish crucifixion victims would receive proper burials. And therefore, Jesus would have received one as well. Certainly sounds compelling. Let's see what evidence Mike has for this. Larry Overstreet says, Okay, Larry Overstreet's book, Roman Law and the Trial of Christ, page 325. Roman law allowed the local law of each province to be exercised without much interference. Without much interference. Pretty straightforward. And what's Mike's second source? Oh, it's right here on the same page. Wolfgang Kunkel says, Local administration, the administration of justice as between the natives of the province, and many other tasks were in general simply left to the political organs of the subject people. This certainly sounds supportive of Mike's premise, but if we keep reading his same source, one significant exception to this was jurisdiction on matters involving capital punishment, which was reserved to the procurator. So this exception that Mike is claiming for Judea itself, and upon which he is building his case, has a significant exception, capital punishment. Christian professor Francis Lyall clarifies in his paper on Roman laws, part of the Jewish territory was placed under Rome under the Herodian dynasty, and part was made into the province of Judea, and continued to be governed by its old laws and institutions, including the Sanhedrin, save only so far as the Romans considered it necessary to interfere. The Romans did, for example, reserve the right to impose capital punishment, as in the case of Christ. But the day-to-day -day administration was none of their concern. So these allowances for Jewish laws and institutions stopped where they conflicted with general Roman consideration. And again, capital punishment is specifically called out as an area where Roman rules overrode local laws. So the big question is, did the Romans consider the burial of a crucifixion victim to be a part of their capital punishment interest? I think it's abundantly clear, as seen in the nine sources we skimmed over earlier, that leaving the bodies on the crosses, having them eaten by birds and animals, and ultimately indignantly tossed in a ditch, was a significant portion of the deterrent strategy of the Roman interest. The punishment did not end at the point of death. Short of evidence to the contrary, it doesn't seem Jewish burial wishes would automatically be prioritized over standard Roman crucifixion practice in Pilate's Judea. Regarding burial practices for the crucified, Ehrman acknowledges the existence of this passage in Philo, which says upon the birthday of the emperor, We gonna party like it's your birthday. Crucified victims could be buried. It's my birthday. Get yourself something nice. Maybe go ahead and bury your disgrace dead in celebration. Now the context of this was a specific decision of the Roman governor in Egypt and didn't extend outside of that realm. 
Because once again, these matters were decided by each appointed ruler. Fair enough. An appointed leader could choose to make an exception. But I think Mike is missing the point here that this was a noteworthy exception on a special celebration. Absent documentation to speculate that what in one province was a noteworthy exception would have been just common practice in another province is just speculation. Now, Ehrman thinks this is, this is the exception of the rule, but we do have other sources. For example, Josephus tells us, the Jews took down those who were condemned and crucified and buried them before the going down of the sun. Now, Mike's slide has an asterisk on this reference. I don't have time in my opening statement to address all of Ehrman's objections to this passage. He was probably right about that, as Ehrman's objections to the passage are numerous. But, worth noting if it's to be brought up at all, from an Ehrman blog post in 2018, first, and possibly most importantly, Christians like to imply that this passage is about Roman crucifixions, but the context of this seemingly affirming sentence fragment is in a section about battling the Idumeans, a group of foreigners who were enemies of both Judea and Rome. Not only does this passage say nothing about Pilate's rule, it's not even expressly about the Roman Empire at all. For completeness, the other objections include Josephus' unique social position of being a Jew hired by Romans to write history, which does lead him to whitewash the worst traits of both groups when he can. Third, this passage is about events a generation after Jesus. Fourth, it is doubtful Jews were crossing enemy lines during the Great War in order to bury each of the hundreds of individuals being killed daily. And thus, fifth, making this a circumstantial happening, not a general rule. Sixth, the passage uses the Greek word for malefactors, common criminals, an entirely different word than is used for political insurgents like the gospel described Jesus. And seventh, this malefactor specification reinforces the notion that the worse the crime, the less likely to have a burial exception. Now it does say it's not always permitted, especially if the person committed high treason. This is merely a small taste of what was an entire series of blogs by Dr. Ehrman on this topic. Perhaps Mike will do an extensive analysis one day, as it didn't come up again in the debate. But, as he's using a passage ostensibly not about Rome, in an attempt to characterize Rome, we'll ignore and move on. This is backed by archaeological data, as we have found two crucified victims who were allowed a burial from the same general time period. <laughs> Whoa, what is backed by archaeological data? Historians acknowledge that there were exceptions made for some crucifixion victims to have proper burials, and Mike acknowledges that some crucifixion victims were not given proper burials. Both things happened. The debate isn't about whether either thing ever happened. It's about relative frequency. So two examples of the exception doesn't really affirm anything. And same general time period is a rather generous description of these finds when Mike is wanting to narrow everything down to the time and place of the rule of Pilate. According to the same paper Mike cites, the Abacave specimen is dated to 37 BC, some 70 years before Jesus' death. And the Proto-Samaritan writing found with the specimen on the right puts it closer to 600 BC than to Jesus' time. These are crucifixion burials from before Pilate was born. So that was Mike's extra-biblical, evidence-based hypothesis. 
that because Judea, under Pilate, tended to defer to Jewish laws that were not in direct contradiction to Roman laws, the Jewish crucifixion victims were probably given a proper burial, and therefore it's more likely than not that Jesus was given a proper burial. The problem is that for all the available historical evidence presented, capital punishment is specifically carved out as an area where the laws of the Roman Empire contravened local ordinances. So Mike would need to demonstrate that Roman concern for capital punishment ended with the death of the victim, when it seems clear that the Empire considered post-mortem corpse displays to be tantamount to the entire endeavor. Now, Mike does believe we have a source that accomplishes part of this. We can limit ourselves to sources that only speak of burial practices under Pilate. And the only sources are basically the Gospels. Mike's evidence is the Gospels. Yet for the debate... The topic is if Jesus was buried in a tomb as the Gospels record. This is like debating, is it really a beautiful day in the neighborhood, as Mr. Rogers says? And then... Rather than citing weather reports or other conditions, just playing a clip of Mr. Rogers saying it as your primary evidence. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. It's not exactly illuminating. It's just reasserting the premise. Check out my Claims Aren't Evidence video for a discussion on the distinction between simple utterances and utterances that also double as testimony. If Mike would like to argue the latter, he may proceed and all of them say Jesus was allowed to be buried in a tomb. You're not asserting that the Gospels are for independent sources, are you? Now perhaps Matthew and Luke were just copying Mark. And it's not just perhaps. Matthew and Luke were definitely copying Mark. They are not independent sources. Bart Ehrman notes it's widely thought the Gospel of John did not rely on the other three Gospels for its information. Dr. Ehrman is right. This is what has been widely thought, though he would affirm that even without literary dependence, they do stem from the same single unified oral tradition. Even if he is wrong. And I think he is. Modern scholarship from Richard Bauckham, James Barker, Mood Smith, Barnabas Lindars, and others are providing more and more compelling arguments for John's literary dependence on Mark and the Synoptics. And Dale Allison notes the creed of 1 Corinthians 15 implies Jesus at least had a proper burial. To quote, the verb means bury and would hardly be used of unceremonious dumping of a criminal into an unmarked trench as dog food. That was not a burial, but it's denial. Here's the Greek for 1 Corinthians 15.4, and the Greek word etophy, hopefully I'm saying that right, used for burial in the passage. And here's a 2019 paper providing a historical review of Jewish burials from the period, specifically in light of class differences. The index lays out examples of the word being used by ancient Greeks to describe everything from rock-cut tombs of the elites, to field graves of farmers, to probable trench graves of non-elites. As such, this particular word alone tells us nothing about what kind of burial Jesus' body was given. So the burial of Jesus is multiply attested. No, no it's not. And there are no competing traditions from the first century that say otherwise. This is an argument from silence. For all we know, there were dozens of competing traditions that simply didn't survive to modern day. Dale Allison also notes there's no reason for the Jews to make, uh, or for the Christians to make up a tomb story, as they uh, were ready to embrace the shameful act that Jesus was crucified. Uh, they could easily just embrace the idea that he was thrown into a mass on Mark grave. In fact, 
as Jake uh, Spencer Kennard remarked, that would actually better fit with prophecy like Isaiah 53, him being buried with criminals. Mike is talking about Isaiah 53, 9, which reads, He was assigned a grave with the wicked. That's the part Mike thinks would be bolstered by a mass grave. But that's followed by, and with the rich in his death. Most evangelicals point to this rich man's grave as fulfilled prophecy. Criminals are found in every socioeconomic class, but needing the Messiah to be buried with the rich to fulfill this passage gives every reason to invent Joseph of Arimathea. This prophecy hurts Mike's case more than helps it. And that's all I'm asking we do is we treat the Gospels like other ancient sources, innocent until proven guilty. So the burden is on the skeptic to prove they are guilty. The burden is not on me to prove they are innocent. Ah, but that's not how we treat ancient sources. They all carry their own burden of proof, and we apportion our confidence in them based on the specific claims made, the prior probabilities, and corroboration with other data. Christian scholar Dr. Sean McDowell warns against the kind of thinking Mike advocates here. I might see this one a little bit differently, believe it or okay. not. In fact, okay. in, in, in Mike Lacona's book on the resurrection, he cites this position that I think Swinburne is right, that in normal, everyday conversation, we assume somebody speaking the truth and not telling us lies. We couldn't function or live without such an assumption. But Lacone actually says when it comes to history, the person who makes the claim on any side bears a burden of proof to see if we should trust this testimony or not. So I, I think Swinburne is, is right in the majority of ways that we communicate. But historically speaking, since we're removed in, in time, obviously, and especially I do understand how some skeptics are like, OK, these are radical claims in the New Testament that somebody died, came back, that Jesus walked on the water. I understand why people are going to say, OK, I believe that unless I can come up with some reason that it's not true. I guess the skeptic in me says, I want to know why I should trust these eyewitnesses on such an important topic rather than a reason why I shouldn't trust them. Um, and with that, I will conclude and I will begin taking notes. And so we close. Mike's argument sounded compelling, but I don't think it held up well to scrutiny. What do you think? And while we're here, Mike's closing admonition against holding the Bible up to scrutiny reminds me of another video he made recently, one featuring my face on the thumbnail, his answer to my criterion of embarrassment challenge. This is not a historical criteria that is used outside of New Testament studies only within the New Testament for some reason. I'm still waiting for an example of its use by a professional historian in any other context. For those unfamiliar with the topic, the criterion of embarrassment is when an ancient author admits something in his writings that would have been considered embarrassing for himself or his message, especially when it was presented to his immediate audience. Now, skeptics are correct when they point out this criterion is more frequently used in New Testament studies. Indeed. So much so that, despite my own good-faith effort, I'd been unable to find examples of its use by professional historians outside of New Testament studies. My efforts included talking to secular historians who scoffed at the mere notion. More on this later. But I know the dangers of arguing from silence, and the potential pitfall of black swan fallacy. Which is precisely why, over multiple videos over the years, I've specifically asked my audience for examples. I'm genuinely grateful that Mike took up the challenge. He was able to find some examples that, though not using the label criterion of embarrassment, are most charitably interpreted as using the same principle. In Akhenaten and the Origins of Monotheism, James Hofmeyer 
briefly talks about the first intermediate period of Egypt and a piece of wisdom literature that speaks of this time period called the Teaching of Merikari. What makes Mary Ibre's confessions credible is that Egyptian kings rarely admit wrongdoing. Sennacherib admits by his silence that he never penetrated within the walls of Jerusalem. It contains much that Confucians would have preferred that it did not include, precisely because they go against the purpose of the tradition, which is the enhancement of national prestige, and so survive in the narrative only because they happen is reasonable. We'll come back to this last one. But in general, I concede this point to Mike, that there are at least four examples of secular historians using a similar principle to the apologist-labeled criterion of embarrassment. True to my word, I will no longer say there are no secular examples. I have new information now, and it would be foolish to ignore it, though it's possible I might adopt Mike's phrasing. This criterion is more frequently used in New Testament studies. If I'm honest, I guess I was hoping to see examples of some respected work in the philosophy of history, prescriptively putting forth such a criterion with anything near the same veracity with which I see Christian apologists advocate for this as a primary tool in their historical reliability toolbox. Skeptics tend to overemphasize how much weight other Christians are actually placing on this. Though I really want people to understand what the historical criteria are. Number one would be historical fit. Secondly, would be independent early sources. A third criterion is the criterion of embarrassment. But I don't regret this hunt because it led me to having conversations with secular historians and discovered the actual reason it is so rarely used, a reason Mike himself included in his video. We don't have the same level of skepticism employed for other ancient works as we see thrown at the New Testament. Nope, but we'll come back to that. So let's set the record straight and point out this criterion has limitations and should be used with caution. If something was embarrassing, that doesn't necessarily prove the account is true. Not everything we believe would have been embarrassing necessarily was. Yep, that. Historians are extremely reluctant to pretend to know what would or would not have been embarrassing for another person in another location, in another culture, in another time. This is a mistake historians try to avoid. And even if they were to go that far out on an unsupported limb, they would then have to layer these embarrassment assumptions on top of assumptions about why they might be willing to be embarrassed. Was it because of truth? Or was it to ingratiate? Was it to undermine an internal rival? Was it to lend credibility to an even bigger lie? If the latter, it's a good strategy. Because it's working. Even before Mike's video, I'd already pivoted my criticism to this seemingly unanimous refrain about history. Not everything we believe would have been embarrassing necessarily was. Now despite these examples, it is true the criterion of embarrassment is more heavily used in New Testament studies. But this would be expected, since there is an excessive amount of unnecessary skepticism when it comes to even the simple matters of what the New Testament says. What is unnecessary skepticism? Is there an analog of unnecessary credulity? Unnecessary acceptance? If somewhere within the Bible, I were to find a passage that said two plus two equals five, I wouldn't question what I'm reading in the Bible. I would believe it, accept it as true, and then do my best to work it out and to understand it. In researching for this video, I emailed a few scholars to ask if they knew any additional examples of the criterion of embarrassment being used outside of the New Testament. Within 15 minutes, Daryl Bach replied back to me with, why would it be? 
those works do not work in this kind of sociological context with this kind of skepticism. Is Dr. Bach suggesting that Christianity is in a unique position needing to employ subpar tactics? because the most reliable tools of history aren't sufficient to vindicate what he deems to be the word of God, that an increased degree of difficulty justifies quantity of argument over quality of argument. We don't have the same level of skepticism employed for other ancient works, as we see thrown at the New Testament. Sure we do. I often utilize the works of Josephus in my critiques of Christian claims, yet in this very video, I pointed out his tendency, as a Jew, to attempt to paint the Jews in the most favorable light he can, while at the same time, as an employee of Rome, to downplay their negative qualities, and that this whitewashing should be kept in mind in interpreting his works. That's the reason I don't think Mike's use of Josephus as his fifth example is a good one. The portions of Josephus's works that are corroborated with others are held in greater confidence than the portions where he is the only source. Greater confidence is placed on the events during his life than the events before his life. Historians debate where Josephus's work might have insertions, deletions, and errors from later scribes. This is equal treatment. I don't believe the New Testament, but historical examination has me convinced that six of its letters ascribed to the Apostle Paul are, in fact, genuine letters of the Apostle Paul, and that these six books command high historical value. The question I have to ask is, why is your standard of evidence so low? If this collection of books is divinely inspired and is worthy of shaping my life, why would anyone need to advocate a lowering of standards in order to accept it? We don't play silly jingles when people cite him saying, oh, because Polybius tells me so. To strongly imply his writing should always be assumed as questionable until something corroborates his account. But why don't you? Why don't you hold all claims as questionable until you have corroboration? Instead, we assume his account is innocent until we have a reason to doubt it. No, absolutely not. We should always apportion our confidence to the evidence available and further balanced with the impact to our lives if we should happen to be wrong. What Mike proposes is hypercredulity that I can't even fathom. I do congratulate Mike for correctly identifying that I use the For the Bible Tells Me So exclusively in the scenario where a claim has one and only one source and cannot be corroborated. Other critics seem to miss this point, and I learned this so-called jingle from my Christian church. which strongly advocated unquestionably swallowing whatever the Bible says. Don't blame me. I didn't write it. The skepticism for the biblical text is excessive, and not the same when it comes to other ancient documents. This charge might hold some merit if the credulity of Bible adherence wasn't so excessive, until an apologist can point to which portions of the Bible that they consider to be less reliable than other portions. How am I to take these charges seriously? While the schools where the Bible is taught require teachers and students alike to sign statements of faith that the Bible is without error, what demonstration could I see that Christians are evaluating the scriptures as they would other ancient documents? Show us what intellectually honest evaluation looks like. Lead by example. Thanks for watching. For more evaluation of the New Testament and its claims, tap on the thumbnail on your screen now 
and I'll see you there. Later.